When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Holding Pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, cat. How is everyone today? I'm feeling a little demoralised because I failed at Wordle today. <gasps> I you know, failed? I know, I know, I know. That's not like so you. So I never thought, I mean, I didn't think it was possible to fail at Wordle. <laughs> um, do you do it, Richard? No. No. Yeah, it's I quite addictive. What about you? Do I, yeah, I do it as well. Yeah. Now I stumbled, you get six chances to guess a word. You and didn't get it. Didn't get it. And there's a slight sinking feeling when you get to that. Was it because it was a tricky word? No, it wasn't a tricky no. word today, was it? No, it was no. a very straightforward one. <laughs> do you know, I'm not really one for... Richard, you're yes. going to be starting again with something I know nothing about. 
a man called Frank Matcham. Frank Matcham, the greatest theatre architect probably these islands have ever produced. When you think of a theatre, what do you think of? You think of a sort of horseshoe shape, you think of plush seats perhaps, you think of cream and gold, that rather traditional sort of Western theatre. What you're thinking of is essentially Frank Matcham. Acknowledged today as a truly great architect in his field, it was a bit of a Cinderella thing because architects of theatres were considered to be sort of on a par with architects of pubs. And in fact, lots of music halls began originally as a sort of adjunct to a pub. An additional offer on the part of a publican would be to stick a music hall, the City Varieties Music Hall in Leeds, a classic example. So you could get your punters in for a show as well as a pint. So it wasn't a particularly prestigious field to work in. And architects, indeed, in the time of Frank Matcham, it was not a prestigious profession. It was more a sort of apprenticed craft, if you see what I mean, rather than somebody wearing chunky specs and living in Berlin. <laughs> well, Frank Matcham was born in Newton Abbott in Devon in 1854. He was apprenticed at 14 to a local architect, talented boy. He went off to London for a bit, worked as a quantity surveyor. So he learnt there, I think, about materials and about building in a cost-effective and a speedy way. Those characteristics were to mark his practice throughout his life. But he returned to Devon because Isaac Singer, the sewing machine millionaire, bought an estate in Devon and moved there from France and built a place called Oldways House. And that had a ballroom and a theatre. And it is thought that Frank Matcham designed the ballroom and the theatre with deluxe ingredients to meet the exacting requirements of Mr Singer. Perhaps that's where he's cut his teeth. He then went to London, where he worked for a fellow called Robinson, who was the consulting architect for the Lord Chamberlain, who was the censor, the theatre censor in Britain up until the 1960s. Mr Robinson, well, Matcham cleverly married his daughter, and then Mr. Robinson died, and so Matcham found himself uh, the head of that enterprise. And it coincided with a kind of boom in theatre building. Partly this was to do with the frequency with which theatres burnt down. If you were a theatre owner in the 1880s, 1890s, you probably would have more comprehensive fire insurance than in any other line of work. There was a notorious fire in Exeter in 1887 when a theatre burnt down, causing the death of 186 people, most of whom were trampled trying to escape the gallery. And anyway, it was an absolutely appalling event. And Matcham was one of the people who came along, was not only able to build theatres, but also to innovate. He innovated in terms of structure, construction. He innovated also in terms of safety. So, for example, the push bar emergency exit was invented by Frank Matcham. He also invented systems of ventilation. There's one left, the Bristol Hippodrome. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes. But it has a removable dome at the top. Do you know what I mean? So Matcham would install central heating. That was another innovation of Matcham in the theatres. Theatres, the auditorium, were lit by gas. He was also an innovator bringing electricity in, actually. But as you can imagine, that would create a rather hot and stuffy, perhaps even dangerous environment. So Matcham invented the sort of ducting system. And the Bristol Hippodrome, they still do it now, very occasionally. You can lift the top of the dome and it provides room for hot air to rise. And so you get ventilation. He ventilated theatres. I think the most important innovation he made in terms of construction, though, was the cantilevered balcony. Theatres, prior to his use of cantilevered steel, would put their balconies and their dress circles on pillars, which of course resulted in restricted view. Who needs that? Nobody needs that. So Matcham was an innovation using cantilevered steel, so there were no supporting pillars for balconies and dress circles. We don't really know how many he built or adapted, but it's thought to be around 150 and 160 theatres. He worked an awful lot with the Revel family, who were big theatre owners, and then he moved to work for Stolmos, an organisation still in existence today, big theatre managers. In London, his greatest theatres, a lot were sort of swept away in the 1960s and 70s. The Colosseum is probably his crowning achievement. That was built for Stolmos. The Hackney Empire is his too, and some would say that the Hackney Empire is perhaps the most perfect interiors of his. That was built for Stolmos too. They planned to have their HQ there, but then the temptations of the West End and proximity to the more fashionable parts of London prevailed. And so they went to the Colosseum. You mentioned early on, Richard, the sort of look of his theatres. Was that just how he envisaged it? Was it the fashion of his time, or was he looking back to something more classical? 
it was a right old mixture. I mean, if you look at the Colosseum, for example, it's got a bit of Venetian, it's got a bit of Egyptian. I think what he was doing was kind of two things. In the music halls that he built, I think what they were trying to do was introduce glamour and excitement and luxury to the lives of people who didn't really readily access. You know, there were people who were getting newly enriched in the Victorian era, of course, and in the boom at the end of the 19th century, turn of the 20th century, as Victoria's reign gave way to Edward VII's reign, people were looking for luxury and excitement, the Belle Epoque mm. and all that. So I think what Matcham did was kind of create these fantasies of luxury and style, red plush, ivory, gilt, gold, cream, all that kind of thing, chandeliers. And so people could have access to that. Did it have an impact on what sort of plays were being performed and that side of it as well? Well, yeah, it depends where you went, actually. So a lot of his most spectacular theatres were spectacular because of pantomime. I talked about this the other day, didn't I? And I went about pantomime. But pantomime around the turn of the century was a huge, huge enterprise. could cost tens of thousands of pounds to put on. For instance, for the Colosseum, he built a revolve that was so splendid. I think it cost £70,000. The cost of the building was £250,000, an enormous mm. yes. sum in the early 20th century. But the revolve was so good, they recreated Derby Day and they had real riders on real horses galloping <laughs> round on the revolve, or rather the revolve was doing the galloping, if you see what I mean. And there was one special effect where he had people dressed up as Red Indians or Native Americans, we would say now, paddling canoes down a waterfall. And the idea was for ooh and the ah, and mm. it was to pack in a crowd, right? He didn't just build big theatres. His loveliest theatre of his that's still standing is the Wakefield Royal, which is a 500-seater, the Colosseum, uh, it was two and a half thousand, you know, five times the size of that. And they were extraordinary. And he was constantly innovating. At the Colosseum, again, there was a telephone exchange. So you could telephone from box to box. And also a sort of central bureau where doctors could leave the particulars of where they would be sitting in the event of a lady experiencing a faint and requiring their attention. There was a special little... It was like a little sort of train that pulled the Prince of Wales, later Edward VII, through the crowd towards his seat. Matcham, not only the Tower Ballroom he did the decoration for, but it's thought he also did the circus too in Blackpool, where there was a bar to serve patrons in the intervals that was so tiny it had to be staffed by what they call dwarves, mm. people of small mm. stature. So it's known as the Dwarf Spa, and you would, it's not used now, but that was what you would need to be to do it. He worked very quickly. He could build a theatre in 20 weeks, and he worked very economically and also, as I said, constantly innovating. Actors love Matcham theatres because he was very good at getting a lot of theatre into a restricted space. The Grand Theatre in Islington, which burnt down basically every year. For some reason, it seems to be the most flammable theatre <laughs> in the history of, of drama. But he was able, on a very restricted floor space, such as you'd find in London, working class districts of London, to get an awful lot in. And this is by the ingenious use of geometry. I'm trying to work out why there were so many fires in theatres. Was it flame? Was it the gas you mentioned? Well, they, were just, they, were, they were accidents waiting to happen, lit by gas very frequently. Yes. And of course, the bigger the show the more complex the set. And often what would happen would be a gauze would happen, an unattended light would happen. And I think he built the Grand in Islington. He rebuilt it at least twice. And one of those, it caught fire on the opening night. They managed to deal with it. But uh, they were very, very dangerous places. And of course, you know, where else would people go? They were centres for entertainment and, and for all classes as well. Everybody mm. went to the theatre. And would you be smoking in a theatre in those days? You'd be thrown out if you weren't smoking <laughs> in a theatre <laughs> in those days. So they were crowded. Mm. Um, yes. But Matcham was the person who perhaps started to make theatres. He used concrete an awful lot. Before Matcham, a lot of theatre interiors were timber. And of course, again, very, very burnable. And he worked incredibly hard. He retired to Westcliff on sea. He died rather unfortunately. You know how he died? No. Over trimming his nails. Yeah. I think he was a bit of a oh. popinjay and he was um, so concerned to give himself an absolutely top class manicure mm -hmm. that he ended up getting an infection and he died of sepsis in 1920. And that was the end of Frank Matcham. Wow. Was he honoured in his lifetime? Or was no. he 
No. No, well, interesting. I have a favourite fact coming, which is a kind of honour. But no, he wasn't. He wasn't seen as anyone significant or important. In fact, and then if you think about what happened to theatre in the 50s and the 60s mm. and the kind of kitchen sink drama, and then that notion that theatre should be a plain black box and it should all be about the actors on the stage. Well, those theatres then became very unfashionable. Lots were converted into bingo halls that survived. Lots and lots and lots were knocked down, I'm sorry mm. to say. And... Actors love them because I think you get this peculiarly intimate relationship with the audience. You feel that you're embraced by the audience and that's to do with the kind of sides of the circle and the balcony kind of sweeping round. So it does feel like you're kind of mm. hugged. Mm. So what is your favourite fact? Well, my favourite fact is, <laughs> it's a slightly dubious one, but I like it. It, was, <laughs> it is thought that Frank Matcham's influence, and here's the honour if you like, can be seen to this day in Edward VII's redesign of Buckingham Palace. After Queen Victoria died in 1901, Edward VII, who of course had been Prince of Wales for a long time, had some very, very um, strong views, the Queen having rather absented herself from matters of state, on how to represent the monarchy, if you like. And one of the things he did was redesign Buckingham Palace. And if you look at the ballroom and the grand staircase of Buckingham Palace, what do you see? Well, you see something that looks pretty much like a Frank Matcham theatre. And I think Jane Ridley, uh, who wrote a wonderful history of Edward VII, which I highly recommend, makes the case that Edward VII's aesthetic, in terms of how you present state rooms, for example, is in fact influenced by Frank Matcham. So this idea that Frank Matcham was kind of copying the decor of a royal or imperial household, well, actually, maybe it was the royal or imperial household copying the decor of Frank Matcham. That's very good. Good fact. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Should we move on to you, Charles? Yes. You've got the next topic, which is a... Well, I'm doing stamps, yes. as in postage stamps. I thought, usually, Kat, you get the practical things, yeah. the paperclip and all that. <laughs> so I thought I'd take the bullet for this one. And I wanted to start with how diverse this field is, really, because you think of them as a very practical invention. I was just wondering what the largest one was. And it was made in March 2013 to celebrate Her Highness Sheikha Fatima bint Mubarak al-Ketbi, the widow of the founder and the previous ruler of the United Arab Emirates. And it is 1.36 metres by 1.77 metres. It is a valid stamp. Very difficult to use. Uh, and it's what's known as a special postage stamp. This is a definition I'll come back to as we go on. There's the practical stamp and then there's the showy stamp. And you don't get more showy than that. Um, Has I think, it ever been used? Well, it's used as a... It's not been stuck to anything put in the post box. <laughs> but it was used as a tribute to the mother of Emirates. It's on display as a stamp but rather tricky to use. You need a lot of saliva on the back of it, I think. <laughs> I've touched on this inventiveness of this nation of ours, uh, Richard. Sorry, your adoptive uh, nation. With charts, our naval charts, etc. And it's the same with postage stamps. The British invented the postage stamp, the first one that was used as a major sort of franking for letters was the Penny Black from 1840 with Queen Victoria. Before that, there were stamps, but they were very localised, really. You'd use it maybe for something internal, something from one point of London to another, but nothing really formal. The Royal Mail, which is the Postal Service of England, as obviously homegrown listeners will know, but the international ones may not, they look back to 1516 as the creation of their service when a man called Sir Brian Tuke, who was one of Henry VIII's courtiers, he worked as a basically a principal secretary to Cardinal Wolsey and Henry VIII, was put in charge of the postal service, master of the posts. But really, there wasn't a formal postal service till the 19th century. We can look at other people along the way who tried to start one. The London Penny Post 
was started in 1680 by a very well-connected merchant whose surname I can't pronounce, and it's William Dockwra, D-O-C-K-W-R-A. Really interesting. I love the characters. When you look into them slightly more deeply, he helped to develop Jersey in the United States. He had a niece called Mary Davis who owned what is now a chunk of central London. It's the chunk that married into the Grosvenor family or the Duke of Westminster to give them the wealth that they have. So this man, Dukra, started the London Penny Post and delivery was guaranteed in four hours inside of London. London obviously being much smaller than today. Um, but we have to look at a sort of system of cross posts. So rather than everything going through London, you set up places where the post could cross around England. And this was set up in 1719 by a man from near UCAT, Ralph Allen, or Rafe Allen, yes. maybe, of Bath. Yes. Do you know of him? Yes, he's very, <laughs> very famous in Bath. <laughs> yes. Touching on what Richard was just talking about, a theatre manager called John Palmer came up with the idea of using mail coaches as a faster alternative to just a man on a horse or on foot. And so a letter could leave uh, Bristol at 4pm, and did actually, on the 2nd of August 1784, and reached London at 8am the next day, which is rather quicker than it might happen today. You get it in a fortnight. at <laughs> all. <laughs> so you had this thing, really, of at first being a free mail service in England for members of Parliament and for royalty, to the extent this was seen as such a desirable privilege that people would lean on members of parliament to please send letters for them as a free thing. But we have to look to a man called Sir Roland Hill as the man who reformed the postal service. He started as a teacher in Birmingham and he was born in 1795 and in the 1830s he proposed a reform of the postal service. He had been on the board of the London and Brighton Railway. He had helped with the South Australian Colonisation Commission. He had really come across this theory that a better communication system was not only desirable, but very much needed. And he lent on other people who wanted the reform of the postal service. Basically, in 1839, a uniform rate was agreed. He argued very strongly that the actual delivery of a postal item was an inexpensive business and a uniform rate would make things much easier. Prepaid would be the optimum way of dealing with this. He didn't suddenly end up delivering a letter which the person didn't pay for. This was a famous trick, actually, before the stamp came into introduction. People would look at the letter from their sister who lived 200 miles away, think, well, she's all right then, and not pay for the delivery. <laughs> and so he also insisted, not by law, but he thoroughly recommended that every house have what we would call a letterbox now. So he started a competition on the best form of prepayment and came up with three, of which the first and most popular was a stamp. The second was a stamped letter sheet. So he bought a sheet already stamped. And then another one, which is a variation on that, which was an embossed piece of paper with a stamp on it. And an artist called William Mulready was asked to design the stamp. He was an Irishman who was connected very popular at the time with very romanticised scenes. And he lent on the wood graving ability of a man called John Thompson, who went on actually to be the man behind the History of British Birds by William Yarrell, which is one of the most famous books, the 1840s. So a lot of thought was put into the British stamp to make it a beautiful thing and, a, and, a, and something that the country could be proud of. And in fact, because we were the first ones in on the stamp trade, as it were, it's agreed still today that we're the only nation that doesn't have to put its name on its stamps. Just the monarch's head. The monarch's head has to be on it. Other countries have flouted this, but uh, those are the rules. May they sink into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, the second country to bring in the stamp was Brazil. And they decided not to have their emperor's head, Pedro II, on it because they thought that defiled his image. So they started with beautiful designs, actually. If you look at the original Brazilian stamps from 1843, it's of a, what they call bull's eyes. It's very beautifully formed figures for the different denominations. And then on to goat's eyes. And America came in relatively late in the late 1840s with these. The Penny Black is the most famous stamp, of course. It's a beautiful thing, not just an innovation in communications technology, but a beautiful object, a beautiful thing. Do you know, it was uh, based on an image of Queen Victoria, a sketch taken of her at the age of 15. 
and it remained the image of her to the end of her reign. Mm. Not the same with the late Queen Elizabeth II, where she had one that did her up till, well, did the nation up until 1966, and then a later one after that. But it was a, a beautiful sketch. It's iconic, isn't it? And they are valuable. It's quite interesting. I, was, I, I knew very little about the value of stamps. I always thought a penny black was of incredible, endless worth. And yes, in stamp collecting, it's all about rarity value. If it's in perfect condition, never been used, then that's obviously fantastic. If it's been on a letter, the lighter the stamp or the mark on it, the better. And also, there were no perforations to start with. They were cut individually. In fact, it was the English who invented the perforated stamp. I mean, some of them have been worth a lot. I, I mean, the most valuable penny black, I think, uh, has been 300-odd thousand dollars. But there are a lot of them around still because they were common currency. Yeah. So you're looking for real, r real value. The first one came out on the 6th of May, 1840, and it was the world's first adhesive postage stamp. And the Maltese cross, which was on it, uh, was imprinted on, on top of a used stamp. That's also known as the obliterating stamp. If that isn't firmly on it, then it's still worth an enormous amount of money today. The point being with the penny black, you've also got the two penny red was very popular. The highest value of stamp in Queen Victoria's reign became the five pound stamp of 1882. And that wasn't surpassed in sterling value until 1993, when they, the British Post Office Royal Mail finally went above five pounds. Could you pay for something with a stamp? Could you use it as tender? I don't know. Stamps are very jealously guarded by the authorities. Even today, if you reuse a stamp, if you notice a stamp hasn't been stamped or mm. franked, it's a fraud to use it again. I suppose fraud. you have to protect... Post office. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Your I mean... valiant efforts on behalf of the wronged postmasters have been very good, Richard, I must say. But the, the point being, you, you end up with all this stamp collecting becoming quite a major thing. And we've had some quite famous stamp collectors in the past. King George V was obsessed with them. I mean, he's been portrayed as caring more about his stamps than his children. And he started the collection of stamps that today the royal family's collection is valued at about 100 million pounds. Oh and they have a copy of every single one except, and we're getting to my favourite fact, it's one that is the British Guiana one cent magenta. Mm. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I had you are a stamp collector. collector. I was, I'm not there. Well, that's interesting because that fits in. So you and I are at the same age, Richard. And stamp collecting, if you go by the membership of stamp bodies in the United States, the number of stamp collectors has probably fallen by 50% since 1988. And it is baby boomers like us who are the last generation of it. And a lot of this has been undermined, stamp collecting has been undermined by the internet because people can Google and find out that the stamp that the dealer's trying to sell them is extremely rare isn't very rare at all. <laughs> They're not a very good investment. Over time, they've been estimated to have the same appreciation in value as sort of medium level art. So a real return of sort of two and a half percent, much less than say stocks and shares and property. But the one that uh, I touched upon just now this one from British Guiana, has an extraordinary, my favourite fact about it is not just the fact that it is the only one of its kind, and therefore the only one that happens not to be in the British royal family's collection because it's owned by someone else. But it was owned by this very bizarre man called John E. Dupont from the famous billionaire family in America. And he set up an Olympic wrestling training camp on his Pennsylvania estate called Team Foxcatcher. And he was convicted of murder in 1997 because he shot an Olympic gold meddling wrestler. His teacher? Well, he just shot him. It was his teacher and his mentor and he shot him dead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a Hollywood movie actually called Foxcatcher based on his rather bizarre life. But he continued to collect stamps while imprisoned for life. So he bought this unique stamp for $935,000 as an anonymous bidder in 1980, which was a new world record. And then after his death, he died in 2010, this stamp was sold posthumously in 2014 for $9.48 million. 
by far the most valuable stamp to ever be sold by what is known as the infamous, famous philatelist. Who bought it? It's an anonymous person, I think. Do you think it's the British Royal Family? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if, if so, it's not in their stock book, as it were. But I love the idea that this extraordinary stamp, the most famous stamp really in the world, has had such a checkered career. And also that this slightly deranged, in that he had suffered very badly from mental health issues, this man carried on collecting stamps that he never saw. He wasn't allowed to hold them in his prison cell. Maybe I'm just being stereotypical here, but stamp collecting is a very male thing, isn't it? I think it is. Mainly men. Why is that? I had a passion for collecting when I was young and I collected all sorts of things. But I had an uncle who was a stamp collector, a serious stamp collector. I collected coins, which is equally nerdy, and I used to subscribe to Coin Monthly. (laughs) There's my confession. What was your best coin? Well, I had a chart of all the pennies, the old pennies. My father bought me a chart when they were being phased out. I never got it. I think it's 1933 or something. One of them's very rare. Never got that. But I got all the old pennies. I was quite pleased with that. That explains why you would recognise a 1947 shilling. Yes, the half silver one. Yes. No, it's mainly Roman <laughs> coins. More exciting. Roman coins with yes. cat. Yeah, <laughs> that's more and exciting. Richard once think. gave me a shilling from a very distinguished year for. Well, it was a bet. A bet. Yes, yes, it was, which you won. Yes. Yeah, but I want to know what you collected apart from your bundi, bandi, bundi, budan. Baden. But Boona, Boona <laughs> yeah. really, that's close. <laughs> Took me a while. I only had the one. They're too expensive to actually collect more than one. What are they again? They're full costume. Oh, yes, Do you remember yes, when the yes, police yes, told yes. to go home? Yeah, because, <laughs> because I didn't have my <laughs> thing on properly. And I'd, yeah, Can you just say off. how much I like the idea of there being Norwegian traditional costume police? Yes. <laughs> yes, well, mm, yes, you mean you should... Try put one on and then see if they come after oh, you if you do it right. Love to wear yes, Norwegian. okay, brilliant. We'll go. We'll take you to Oslo and get you all dressed up. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty-four-seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Right. Well, And Kat, come on. We have yes. you now. On to me, on to me, finally. So I am <laughs> talking today about ice skating. So we had roller skating, roller derby. So yes. Better take the ice skating as well. And I was interested in this, obviously, because I can bring the Vikings into it. So. Mm. But I've I've been really interested in early skates, actually, not just sort of modern skating, but early ice skating. And since really seeing bone skates, and we do get them quite a lot in the Viking Age, we do get lots of bone skates. So the earliest skates are all made of bone. So they are typically leg bones, often of a cow, so a metatarsal, something like that. And they are literally, you just take the appropriate size animal leg bone, drill holes into the end to put straps through, leather straps, so you can tie them to your foot or to your shoe. They are sort of smooth and polished at the bottom. And then they work really, really well on ice. Sorry, how did this happen? Why did somebody think, I don't know, let's Go across that frozen lake with an animal bone strapped to the bottom of my shoe. Talk me through that. So the origins, we don't actually know. And there's lots of debates and myths. And some of these myths are really intriguing, really exciting, actually. It seems like the first ice skates that we see go back to probably about the second millennium BC. There's this myth that they came from Finland, which is apparently not true. They seem to come from Central Europe or possibly Asia. And so they start as these bone skates, really quite straightforward, quite simple. Skis, again, I'm going to have to talk about skis another time. (laughs) It's clearly the same sort of thing. But I guess people cross frozen lakes very easily and it's quite presumably easy to sort of realise that by sliding on something very smooth, you can do that very much more quickly and efficiently. So it's, I think it's a practicality thing that it comes out of. But we don't even know properly when they start, where they start. There's lots of different examples. There's even one uh, example from China quite recently in archaeological excavations, some of these earliest dating about Three and a half thousand years ago, in a tomb, some ice skates were apparently found. Uh, there's definitely some from the late Bronze Age across Central Europe as well. We have them in England. The earliest ones seem to be Viking Age and Lincoln 
has several of them, actually. Mm. Your favourite cathedral, Richard? Yes. Well, so there's a, there one of the Viking there. towns, so it's possibly <laughs> brought them in. There's some that possibly Roman period, but we don't really know that, but certainly by Viking age. So that's kind of where it started, these bone skates. And they seem to be popular throughout different time periods. There's lots of medieval examples. There's some in art, the earliest medieval art. is, I think, 13th century a manuscript, again, showing people using ice skates. And was that for fun or was it for profit? Or? I think practicality is literally yeah. just getting from A to B. I mean, because rivers, of course, I'm obsessed with rivers and how they've been used for transport and for practical sense. But in winters, rivers freezing over being used to move. So you can move extremely fast on the rivers. But we also see them, some of the earliest examples from Novgorod, for example, that date to the 11th to the 13th century. There's 44 skates found from Novgorod. Many of them are very small and are most likely for children. So it seems like it's... You could pull them along. Yeah, you can pull them, yes, mm. definitely. But also for, for playing, presumably. Some of them have are clearly used with poles as well. So you don't just skate like we would now, but you have a pole that you push yourself along with. Now, one of the interesting things is this link to Scandinavia, because if you read some of the earliest literature and the books on the history of skating and history of figure skating... They claim that this relates back to Norse mythology and Viking mythology. And there's this claim that Norse gods use skates. Now, unfortunately, that turns out not to be true at all. But there's this myth that's been perpetuated for quite some time. And the story that's being told again and again is one of Thor and his companions going out on some adventure where one of them is challenged to a race. And according to this story, it's a skating race. So this becomes a sort of big story that Thor and, and the others used to go skating and were very good at it. It was actually a mistranslation in the 18th century and they were just on foot, but somehow one of these earliest translations. But the reason why that persisted is that actually at the time of all these, this interest in the Viking Age and the sagas being translated is also when figure skating starts. And in England especially, it starts becoming a, a sort of elite sport. So it goes from being this very much more practical, fun, you know, everyone does a bit of skating, to an elite sport that was especially popular among upper-class men. And this is, again, same sort of time with enlightenment and with lots of other things going on and lots of interest in things like medieval sagas. And they were desperately trying to find a sort of historical past to skating, but none could really be found until these mistranslations came up and they went, right, brilliant. OK, so these, these Vikings, these gods were skating. And so... That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, so lots of poems really romanticise skating using these sort of false ideas of the Viking legends. So this is back in sort of late 18th century and onwards. There is the only record in the saga, so it's a 13th century king's saga, Magnuson's saga, where actually one of the kings does boast that he was a really good skater, but that dates to the 13th century. But interesting, so the same period when figure skating really kicks off uh, is in the 18th century. And one really interesting book, the first book that comes out on the history of, of figure skating is called A Treatise on Skating. And it is written by a man called Robert Jones, who uh, is a hugely interesting character. He had previously written a book on fireworks. So his, his mm. main first interest was fireworks. And then he got into skating. This was published in 1772. And it essentially cover the whole sport, it's aimed at beginners, it explains skills and some of the, the really advanced manoeuvres that were being used, like the, the flying mercury was the most famous one, which is a sort of, you stand with one, yes, you know, one exactly, hand in the air. one hand in the air, gliding slowly <laughs> forwards, which was very popular. So now the reason why this book was quite um, famous, unfortunately, is because of Robert himself, because he was also convicted for child molestation. And there was a huge big trial. Uh, he had abused a 13-year-old boy. And this became covered by pretty much all the newspapers. He was eventually sentenced to death. But it actually became one of the first huge big trials and stories uh, relating to homosexuality. So it wasn't the fact that it was a young boy, but it was the fact that it was a boy as opposed to a girl. So... He actually wrote the book while he was on trial for this crime. What, what year are we talking about? We're talking about 1772. Right. What a so, strange... I mean, you'd have thought when you're looking at 
execution and things. You might be writing about something more substantial. Or was he thinking, I've only got a limited time and I must write down everything I know? I think this was just one of his huge, big, big hobbies. And he was yes. so interested in it that he just yes. kept on going. But it's possible that the, the visibility of this trial also helped to advertise the book. And, and it sort of steamrolled a little bit from there. Never which is turned a, down a good PR. <laughs> well, exactly. So that was very, very odd. Was he executed? He wasn't. So he was pardoned, or at least he was, his sentence was uh, commuted to life imprisonment on the day of his, that his hanging was due. And then later on, King George III granted him a pardon if he agreed to go into permanent exile. So mm. he had to live out his life in the south of France in the end. Not much skating there. No, not so much. <laughs> that was the punishment. But, yeah. Anyway, so back to skating. This is a bit of a rabbit hole here. But really, I mean, this time in the sort of 18th into the 19th century, it became an extremely popular sport, especially among, as I said, the upper classes and men, really. And it became a sort of privileged sport, uh, what became figure skating, as opposed to just playing around on the ice, which was still a sort of lower classes thing to do. But the sport itself, which was very much on these moves like the Flying Mercury and all of that, and there were clubs as well. So the London Skating Club, for example, and the Edinburgh Skating Club, which was probably the first and the oldest skating club. And these were very much gentlemen's clubs and you had to have an entrance test to get into it. London Skating Club had a little silver skate pin that you could wear if you're a member of it. And it was partially because these were people who could practice, they had time to practice this sport because they could drop everything when the conditions were right. Had access to a body of frozen water. Absolutely, and so lakes and, and yeah. sort of uh, on estates and things like that. That's fascinating. Then, I mean, really, it starts from the 19th century. The sports becomes more popularised in other places like the US, for example. And it becomes popular because it's then seen as more of an affordable pastime when people can go to Central Park, for example, when, when the lake is frozen over. It was seen as something where it was socially acceptable to be in mixed company and so on. And then it develops into more what we think of today. And in the 1860s, one really important person was somebody called Jackson Haynes, who developed what was called the Viennese style of skating, which really is a sort of modern figure skating, really. He didn't really like what's called the English style of skating, which was then for the skaters to perform a particular move in response to a caller. So somebody would go, Flying Mercury, and you'd do the Flying Mercury and <laughs> glide along. <laughs> exactly. Now, Haynes was a, actually a ballet dancer. Mm. And so he started performing to music and more fluid movement as opposed to just these sort of quite stiff and, and formal sort of holding the same position for a long period of time. It wasn't initially popular, but he travelled to Europe and in certain countries, people really liked it. He went to Vienna, where he set up a skating school, and that's where it became known as the Vienna style of skating. New skates were designed as well that were much more suited to this type of movement, the sort of more dancing. So that really is where what we think of today kicks off, I suppose. And then eventually it comes into the Olympics. So they first go to the Olympics in 1908, actually in the Summer Olympics, because we have these sort of artificial skating uh, rinks. So when did ice rinks become a thing as a sort of leisure amenity? So artificial ice uh, rinks, the first pattern for one of those comes in place in 1841 by somebody named Henry Kirk, who invented them. He was essentially using techniques where artificial ice were made by mixing water with carbonates and sulfate of soda treated with sulfuric acid. So it was a, quite an extensive yeah. uh, technique. It's passed me by. Do you, I've never done it. Well, I used to be taken to Nottingham Ice Rink as a boy, but I found I had no aptitude whatsoever for skating. You so you've never been ice park. skating? The trampoline was, yes. always, it was vertical movement rather than yes. horizontal movement. I've never been skating in my life. You've never been ice skating? No. In Canada, you must know. No, nothing. And um, my only connection with it is very bizarrely. So I had an American grandfather who used to play what we would call ice hockey for Harvard. And he ended up living in Norfolk. And he taught the late Queen to skate on Sandringham Lake. Well, that's interesting because do you know where the late Queen used to skate when she was in town? No. The Grosvenor House Hotel. Oh. Yes, they had one in the basement, yes. didn't they? So now yes. with a great room where yes. you go for, but that used to be an ice rink, and that's where the Queen used to skate. Apparently, oh, it's still underneath. No. Yeah. 
obviously not frozen, but Perhaps you know, the actual Giving rink. after dinner speeches, I've occasionally met an icy reception there. Ah, <laughs> very good, <laughs> very good. But the, so it was the thing, I mean, it was a big leisure activity. People would love yeah. to go skating. But I imagine in Norway, just do it because it's there. Yeah, I mean, we used to do ice skating and PE lessons in the winter. That was yes. the sport we did. And you would just get your own skates and take them to PE lessons on a Wednesday afternoon or whatever it was. And that's just one of the things. And do you um, have long skates or short skates? Or? So, I mean, we used to, when I was little, girls tend to do figure skating and have the figure skate type thing. Ice hockey is also really popular. You could choose, so there was a free choice, but it tended to be more popular for the boys to do have hockey skates. So it's also a big... Or you'd have both. So and the Queen was taught how to play ice hockey by your grandfather. No, no, just to skate. He was an ice hockey player. Do you think he taught her like one or two blocking <laughs> tackles or sort of shots on goal things? Yes, I like to be on the same time. <laughs> so I don't actually have a favourite fact as such on this one, but I have a favourite person. Oh, no, that's allowed. So I have to go favourite person. And she was somebody I, I very much admired growing up, and obviously a Norwegian ice skater called Sonja Henja. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And she. Uh, absolutely incredible skater she was born in 1912 and uh, completely unrivaled in everything she won she was a three times olympic champion 10 times world champion and six times european champion figure skater she first made her olympic debut aged 11 in 1924 and when she uh, her sort of skating career finished she became a hollywood actress and at the height of her career, became one of the highest paid stars in Hollywood. As a skating star. She started with that, but then got into... Roles, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, so starting out like that, but then Summer actually she was, she was actually pretty good. And so she was cast in all sorts of comedies. And, yes. Lawrence uh, of Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> Hugely popular. Obviously one of our big, big heroes. I, I have a question, Kat, and I don't know if you can answer it, and I don't know if the disembodied voice can answer it, but yeah. I think I can remember one winter in the 80s, the canals in Amsterdam freezing. I used to spend some time in Amsterdam. And when the canals froze in Amsterdam, everyone used to skate around the canals. It completely changed, like the Frost yeah. Fair in London. It sort of completely changed the mood of the city and kids would be given little like chairs to learn to skate on. But I don't know if I really remember that or if it's a sort of memory I've imported from somewhere else. I'm not sure. Did the canals in Amsterdam freeze in the 1980s is my question. They definitely have done a lot of times. I don't know about the 80s, but they definitely have done a lot in the past. And there's yeah. a lot of, I think there's a lot of art of from Amsterdam from much earlier periods as well age. of people, yeah, skating. Well, the 1680s was a nice age. Wasn't yes, it? and there's yeah. beautiful paintings of the fairs on, yeah. on the Thames yeah. and things with, yeah. with bonfires on them. Yeah. Yeah. Quite extraordinary, really. Hello. Hello. I just <laughs> wanted to add that although Henry Kirk did invent the sort of first form of official ice rink in 1841, it wasn't actually until 1867 that artificial ice rinks became incredibly popular. And that was because during one winter in Regent's Park, where hundreds of people sort of piled onto the to the ice, there was then a terrible tragedy that killed 40 people. Mm. And it really changed the perception of indoor ice skating. Mm. Can I give you one okay. more? Ice yes, skating please. anecdote from my life. I was barred from Perth Ice Rink. <laughs> That's quite impressive. What did, what you, did do? you do? Drunk in control of a curling stone. Yes. I oh. was at a friend of mine's party, and he's in fact he coaches Scotland in curling, and he said, "Would you like to throw a stone?" And I went, "Yeah, I'd love to. Never done that before." So on the ice rink, gave me a stone, and I was stopped, and I sort of threw it a bit. It was a bit wobbly. And the bloke in charge said, have you been drinking? And I said, well, I've had a drink. And he said, well, I must ask you to leave the ice. Because you can't be drunk and throw curling stones. But imagine away. how happy that made him. You know, he's been waiting for somebody <laughs> to be drunk in, front, in charge of a stone, and he got you. <laughs> what could I do? It was my friend's thing. It was yes. a, I didn't want to cause yeah. an international incident. Right <laughs> Don't drink and curl. It's Don't not. drink and curl. <laughs> so I think we've got to the point now, we've got to find out from our disembodied voice who is this week's winner, please. Yes, and I'll also add before we go that, Richard, it does look like people did used to skate on the canals of Amsterdam in the 1980s. So if we have any listeners from there or thereabouts who want to correct us, so I think I'm, I'm I sure might they'll have let us know. I, I think so. I think I did. Mm. But, yeah. According to a few Reddit threads, people seem uh -huh. to also remember it and participated in it. So we'll That's we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But I think this week's winner. Moving on, I think it's got to be postage stamps. 
Really? The seal of approval, Charles. Seal of approval. No further questions at this time. We have competition here. Well, yeah. actually, you did have a defeat with Wordle today, didn't you? So maybe it's lifted the end of my day. That's yeah. good. Yeah. It's made me want to get my my stamp collection now. Which Do you know where a, it is? Yeah, it's in a trunk. My dad's old army <gasps> trunk. Do that. You have to share it with us all. Share us. I might just inflict that on you one day. I've got some. I've got a penny black. Oh wow! Have that's you? so. And some lots of penny reds. Penny yes. Black. Excellent. So before we go, we're going to tell people what we're going to be researching for next week. Now, Charles, you're actually because there's an anniversary coming up, so you are going to be talking about your father's war experience. I am. I just wanted to look at what's it called, the Greatest Generation, through one snapshot, which is uh, something my father was involved in. So slightly self-indulgent, but a tribute to him because it will be first broadcast that podcast on his 100th birthday. Oh. Excellent. That's exciting. And Richard, you're going to be talking about the theft of relics. Yes. And I will be talking about one of my favourite authors, Agatha Christie. Ooh. Oh, that's very good. What a good combo. Yes. That's good. And then, of course, we also have to continue researching for our special live show, which is coming up very soon. 10th of Feb. Royal and Durgate, Northampton. And yes. Kat and I under some pressure because the audience are going to see that we use notes mm. and Richard never does and we can't let him win on that. No. Oh, I'll hold a piece of empty paper in front of me <laughs> if it makes you We'll give you some Hawaiian royalty names. Yes. But we can, we can guarantee more spills and thrills than a visit to Nottingham Ice Rink. Yes. yes. Don't we? Yes. Definitely. I think and it's going to be great fun. I'd love to tell you that the Royal Theatre in Northampton was built by Frank Matcham but it wasn't actually but it was by the next best, if you see. It's beautiful. It's in the spirit of it. It is beautiful. Yeah. I love that theatre, the Royal. Right. It's really lovely. Yeah, so people can go online, just Google Rabbit Hole Detectives live show. You'll find our tickets link there. And yeah. please do join us. We'd love to have people there listen to us, record an episode, and also have the chance to ask us questions. We'll have mm. a proper live Q&A for people yes. to join in. So we hope to see you there. And that's it for this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Do send us an email if you'd like to tell us about something, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. Our email address is rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, let your need guide your behaviour. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> That's a good skater's tip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs>